This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on gestational diabetes. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Gestational diabetes is a serious condition. It is associated with a range of short and long-term complications for both mother and baby. These include macrosomia, neonatal hypoglycemia, birth injuries, and the long-term development of diabetes mellitus in the mother. So how should we diagnose and manage this condition? To tell us, we have on the line Dr. Chloe Zera, who is Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Boston. And importantly, Chloe is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Chloe, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what exactly is gestational diabetes? That's a great question. Um, The official definition of gestational diabetes is diabetes that is diagnosed in pregnancy that is not clearly overt diabetes. But exactly how we diagnose that remains an area of much controversy. Okay, thank you. So so how do we make the diagnosis? What do the guidelines currently state? There are several different guidelines. Um, One of the reasons is because like any other um, sort of problem that can be defined by a continuous variable. There's not one specific um, cutoff point at which hyperglycemia becomes clinically problematic. There's, in fact, a continuous relationship between maternal glucose values and the risks for adverse outcomes related to hyperglycemia during pregnancy. So because of that, there have been several um, different attempts to define standards. And um, there are now two broad approaches, one-step testing and two-step screening. The one-step test is a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test. um, And that can, with with blood draws at fasting, one hour and two hour. Um, And there are what is called the International Association of Diabetes and Pregnancy Study Groups, or the IAD-PSG guidelines um, for clinically relevant cutoffs that are derived from a large observational study of hyperglycemia during pregnancy. And um, that is generally performed at 24 to 28 weeks of gestation. The other approach is a two-step test, which is where a screening test is administered using a 50-gram glucose tolerance, again, with actually three different accepted values for what is considered abnormal, 130 uh, milligrams per deciliter, 135 milligrams per deciliter, or 140 milligrams per deciliter, and I apologize, I'd have to look at that in millimoles per liter, Um, but no gold standard for even what the cutoff for an abnormal screen is, followed by a three-hour, 100-gram oral glucose tolerance test. That's, again, the two-step screen. The advantages and disadvantages can be summarized in saying that the advantages of a one-step test are that it's one step. Um, It is a longer test um, and requires fasting to be administered. With, with cutoffs that are derived from 
a large multinational observational study. The advantage of the two-step screen is that it um, can be done in non-fasting state because a 50 gram can be done without fasting. So it can be administered regardless of the time of day and it's somewhat more easily accepted. It identifies a smaller number of folks as having clinically relevant um, hyperglycemia, which may have some um, sort of health healthcare delivery implications in terms of the number of people diagnosed. So it may still pick up the most most clinically impacted individuals and save healthcare expenditures and save people the the um, the adverse impact of a diagnosis. But it it remains a point of much controversy because there are impacts to even um, sort of less overt gestational diabetes that is picked up with the t- with the one step screen. So not broadly agreed upon. And in fact, the American Diabetes Association endorses either approach. Okay, thank you. Um, Tell us about other controversies in assessment uh, slash diagnosis of this condition. I think um, the other broad controversy in assessment is what to do in the first trimester. Uh, We all recognize that overt diabetes that is um, undiagnosed in the first trimester has a significant impact. And so there's a benefit to identifying that um, early in pregnancy and treating people. However, what's not clear is if you diagnose gestational diabetes in the first trimester, A, how, you, how should you diagnose it? Um, because all of the validated screening and testing paradigms are, were developed at 24 to 32 weeks. And B, is it meaningful to diagnose sort of less than overt diabetes in the first trimester as opposed to the late second or early third trimester in terms of reducing um, adverse outcomes? And, and we don't actually have any randomized controlled trial data that says that first trimester diagnosis of mild hyperglycemia has um, benefits. Um, we do have data that treatment of gestational diabetes, even mild gestational diabetes, quote unquote, in the third trimester has benefits. So we extrapolate that to the first trimester. However, um, because there are no data to to guide what reasonable cutoffs might be, it's difficult to, um, to develop a gold standard for what the diagnosis of gestational diabetes made in the first trimester should be based upon. Okay, thank you. And so gestational diabetes is typically picked up between 24 and 32 weeks. Is, is that correct? Yeah, typically 24 to 28 weeks. Some of the data come from a little bit later, but yes, 24 to 28. Okay, great. Thank you. And, and do patients typically have symptoms or are they more likely to be asymptomatic but have abnormal test results? No, I think much like prediabetes or type 2 diabetes um, or other disorders of glucose tolerance, patients are typically quite asymptomatic unless they are really, truly overtly hyperglycemic at all times. So it can also be challenging because polyuria, for example, um, which might be a presenting symptom in somebody who is not pregnant is quite common in pregnancy. (laughs) So um, it's often not, um, doesn't trigger thinking that it might be an abnormal symptom. So people generally feel fine. 
Okay, thank you. And are there any other um, pitfalls in making the diagnosis uh, other than the ones you've you've mentioned already? The biggest pitfall, really, when you're thinking about gestational diabetes in general, that kind of ties into diagnosis is just the the word gestational implies that it's a condition that only um, impacts pregnancy. And I would argue that the most significant impact of gestational diabetes is that it heralds a very high risk for progression to type 2 diabetes after pregnancy, and so is a risk indicator for long-term health. Um, and, uh, you know, the benefit, it really points to the need for ongoing engagement with care and for risk reduction for strategies to, to reduce risk long-term um, and prevent diabetes. So I think the biggest pitfall is really that people might um, say this will go away after pregnancy and not um, encourage uh, women to continue with ongoing care after pregnancy. Okay. Thank you. And and to ask a bit of an obvious question, but I think it's one worth a point worth making, anyways. Glycosuria in 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 pregnancy happens um, even without gestational diabetes. Is that correct? It does. It does. I think we don't use it as a diagnostic. Um, it, it is very common in pregnancy at a lower gl- glucose level, just because of the increased um, glomerular filtration filtration that's part of normal pregnancy physiology. I would say persistent glycosuria in the setting of other risk factors for diabetes should prompt um, sort of further investigation. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management. What's the mainstay of management of gestational diabetes? So the mainstay of management is actually self-monitoring of blood glucose, which we perform quite frequently, um, and at least initially. Um, typically, the consensus guidelines recommend that we monitor fasting blood glucose values as well as one to two hour postprandial glucose values, and then um, nutrition and physical activity. So there's no one standardized uh, diet, although kind of controlled carbohydrate diets are widely prescribed. And physical activity does not prevent gestational diabetes, but it can be a helpful adjunct to um, self-monitoring and to, and to dietary modifications. Okay, thank you. Um, are there controversies in treatment? Can you tell us about them? Sure. So I think um, the gold standard for medical management, so folks who need more treatment than just diet and physical activity, um, has always been insulin. So usually for people with fasting hyperglycemia, it's fairly challenging to manage that with um, diet and exercise alone. So we typically recommend long-acting insulin coverage overnight. The biggest controversy at this point remains whether or not oral medications are equally useful. And so there are some randomized controlled trial data suggesting that oral medications really don't perform as well as insulin. The two that have been well studied are sulfonylureas, um, typically gliburide is what's used in the United States. Um, And gliburide is very widely prescribed, um, but somewhat hard to control and in large observational data is associated with 
uh, worse neonatal outcomes. So higher rates of hyperglycemia, macro or hypoglycemia, neonatal hypoglycemia, higher rates of macrosomia, and um, higher rates of NICU admission. It's not clear whether that's because there's placental transfer of uh, sulfonylureas or because they actually, it just reflects um, worse glycemic control from a maternal standpoint. But regardless, um, it seems to not work as well as, as insulin. The other medication that's been well studied is metformin. And metformin does freely cross the placenta. There doesn't seem to be any um, adverse impacts associated with early pregnancy exposure. Um, And there are several studies, several meta-analyses looking at rates of congenital anomalies specifically um, that have not found an association with increased rates of congenital anomalies. If anything, because we know hyperglycemia is teratogenic in and of itself, we often see lower rates of congenital anomalies in fetuses exposed in the first trimester. However, in the third trimester, um, there are some limited data suggesting that um, exposure to metformin in the third trimester may be associated with increased rates of obesity in children who are exposed. And so I think there is concern that there might potentially be some long inter- long-term um, developmental impact um, from the stand or growth impact based on placental transfer and in utero exposure to fetuses. So as I said, this remains an area of much controversy. There have been good randomized controlled trials um, comparing insulin to metformin. And the other big concern with metformin is just efficacy. So in in the trial, a large trial that was done um, in New Zealand and Australia, 50% of the arm that was randomized to receive metformin also needed supplemental insulin. So what I tell patients is it's unlikely to prevent you from needing insulin if you have persistent fasting or hyperglycemia, but it's a reasonable strategy if you really, you know, decline to use insulin and want to try something. So I think with full counseling about what the potential harms are, um, which are really not well understood or fleshed out at this point, it is something that we do use as a second line agent. Um, But I would say that in the United States, specifically the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and the American College of OBGYN have somewhat different recommendations in that um, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine endorses the use of metformin as an alternative um, due to its accessibility and low cost in the United States. Um, So it can be something that is very easily accessible for patients and an alternative to insulin if needed. Okay, thank you. And, and, And lastly, any pitfalls in management? I think the pitfall in management is truly not being aggressive enough with medication when it's indicated. I sometimes see folks try to manage fasting hyperglycemia with diet. Um, And that can be really difficult because um, diet really isn't going to change quickly the amount of, um, you know, gluconeogenesis from the liver overnight. So (laughs) I find that um, for folks that aren't used to using medications in pregnancy, particularly the time horizon that we have is so brief to impact outcomes 
that we really do need to be quite aggressive and see folks quite frequently, like weekly or every other week at most, to make sure that we adequately um, and quickly enough titrate medications to achieve um, therapeutic levels when they're indicated. Okay, thank you. And and lastly, to return to the question of prognosis that you touched on earlier, what is the long-term outcome of gestational diabetes in, in, in the mother? Pregnancy in general is a metabolic stress test, a cardiometabolic stress test. And so the development of either gestational diabetes or preeclampsia heralds a very uh, an increased risk for maternal cardiometabolic diseases later on. Specifically for gestational diabetes, people are at very high risk for type 2 diabetes. Depending on the cohort you look at, it ranges from 30% of women to 70 to 80% of women who will develop type 2 diabetes within 5 to 10 years after an index pregnancy affected by gestational diabetes. So um, as I mentioned, I think one of the most important impacts that we can have on on uh, pregnant folks is really educating them about that long-term risk and helping get them engaged in lifestyle modification where indicated or medication. So metformin has been studied as well postpartum for um, diabetes prevention and, and both lifestyle modification and metformin uh, have been shown to decrease the rate of progression to type 2 diabetes in adults with, with prediabetes. So I think um, it's very important to recognize that as a risk factor. And as a general practitioner, I would say that, that the most impactful thing you could do to prevent diabetes in women of childbearing age is to ask about gestational diabetes, make sure they were screened, and that you know if they had it during their pregnancy so that you can appropriately manage them. Okay, thank you very much, Chloe. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.